Welcome to Engaging ESG, the podcast that considers what it takes to get ESG communications right and how it can go oh so wrong. It's season two and we're back for more. Once again, we're looking at real life examples of ESG messaging, some that will inspire and some that may make you cringe. I'm Jennifer Owens, Director of Marketing at Flow Carbon. And I'm Katie Callens, Lead for Sustainability at Adobe. In this 11-part series, we're delving into the complexity of ESG comms, industry by industry. We'll highlight lessons learned and share practical tips you and your team can use today as you navigate the evolving landscape of environmental, social, and governance topics. Let's get started. We're back. It's episode three. Big three. We are really rolling on this season two. What do you think? Yes, we are moving quick. And honestly, I've been having a lot of fun this season diving deep into particular industries to talk about how they're navigating and talking about their own sustainability landscape. So we are recording this just over the hump of the holiday season. But these days, honestly, I don't know about you, but every week feels like another blowout, oh my God, get it quick sale for my retailers. <laughs> oh, oh, for sure. I mean, the glow of the holiday season is gone. I mean, that's disappeared. And yet the post-holiday sales continue. So it's promotion after promotion, which I will reference my weird backstory in many times during this season. But one was I was a reporter covering the business of fashion and they can't get away from promotions. We're trained as consumers to look for deals. Definitely. Definitely. And so we're actually going to be talking about that a bit more today. The changing industry of retail is going to be the focus because today was um, one that I was researching a little bit more, Jen. So I'm excited to teach you a little bit what's happening. Yes, please do. And in particular, one piece about retail that I find fascinating is sustainable packaging. It kind Uh, of feels like the Achilles heel of many CPG companies, which means consumer product goods. Yeah. So folks who have been with us since season one, thank you. And you might remember that in episode eight, we talked about one of the first major greenwashing campaigns, bottle recycling. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember. I was there. You were there, Jen. I'm so glad you remember. You didn't have too wild of a holiday season if you're still remembering. (laughs) Oh, I did. I did. Season one. (laughs) Um, And what you might also remember from that episode is that one of the things that was so effective about that campaign is that it really put the focus on consumer action and reducing weight and waste, but really shifting the blame and ownership to individuals and thus moving the attention and focus off their operations, which as we know, are the ones that are creating the waste and recycling products in the first place. Yep. And so this focus on consumer action has stayed strong. Many people will know that they're told by a myriad of retail companies to quote, do their part. And thanks to that, we all have shelves full of reusable mugs and drawers full of reusable totes. Yes, I'm one of my favorite reusable cups is one that you made. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Way to call me out. <laughs> 
for the summit. Yes, for the sustainability summit. Oh, it's reusable. (laughs) It is. And I like that one because it's glass too. So it's like, it has that look and feel where you can like use it in the house and it feels like some nice glassware. We know I love a fancy little glass. It elevates my reusable drinking experience. That's for sure. (laughs) Exactly. We're all about elevating here. Speaking of the marketing of CPG, but with that in mind, we're going to talk not so much about what's happening on the consumer end. All of you have felt that guilt for far too long, in my opinion. Yep. But we're going to look at a couple CPG companies in particular, PepsiCo, H&M, Unilever, and Amazon, to look at how they're thinking about sustainable packaging and also related sustainable fashion. Mm. So that's the focus of our episode today. And I just want to reiterate that we are not using this episode as an opportunity for more consumer shaming. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I quite frankly don't love this overly simplistic marketing campaign because I think it's flawed in two key areas. One, it puts the focus on the end of life of a product instead of the upstream design uh, yeah. Yeah. where there is much greater opportunity for changes as we're going to discuss And then the other thing is there's so much variance in whether a product can be recycled or composted. And it really depends on your local waste stream, which varies a ton by state and country. Mm -hmm. And as I was doing this research and talking with friends, I learned an interesting stat, which is, do you know which country burns or incinerates the most waste of any country? The most waste? China. Japan. Japan incinerates 78% of its waste. And a big part of this is due to limited land area for landfills. And they also have one of the lowest recycling rates. Yeah. I was surprised to hear that too, as you know, folks that really focus on design, but it's clear that from a waste perspective, there's a lot to be learned. And incineration is a tool that some countries use when they don't have enough space. But as you can imagine, there's definitely been some fears around air pollution and the like when you are yep. burning all of your waste. My research showed that they are doing a better job of capturing those chemicals, but it can't all be captured. And no. so today's episode on retail and packaging is really going to get into some of the good stuff. In my mind, that is the upstream efforts of companies to reduce waste and carbon emissions. And of course, how they're communicating these efforts. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it's in your life every day. I mean, whether it's shopping for clothing, but also grocery shopping, that that's also, you can't control as a consumer how a lot of the packaging comes to you. Sometimes there's certain ways, you know, putting the guilt on us, but it's hard to have to, to navigate it yourself and to make changes that impact the upstream. You can't. You're the you're the end consumer. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I love it. And I don't know. There's so many ads too, because I, I want so many, many things. <laughs> they make them look so beautiful. Marketing they really do. Is a they really do for a reason. But so yeah, today we're gonna find out a little bit more, dive into what's going on behind those glossy ads. Okay. And so I thought what we could start with is a very ubiquitous product, plastic, which is a petroleum-based product. And as we know, it's used a lot because it's incredibly versatile, but it's hard to recycle and hard to upcycle into multiple uses due to pliability. And so the first company we're going to dive into today is PepsiCo. And if you look up their website, if you look up their CSR report, they are a visible advocate for sustainability. 
but they also have had a challenging track record on their reduction of virgin plastics and overall recyclability and compostability of their packaging. And Mm -hmm. what I didn't fully realize actually before researching this episode is that PepsiCo is kind of an umbrella for many brands. So Lay's, Quaker, Doritos, Gatorade, Cheetos, those are all kind of encapsulated. Basically, every brand my child's my children want to eat. So, got it. <laughs> exactly the like, Costco, the snack brands is kind of yeah. how I think about they even it. Even Cheetos, I, we we basically <laughs> fund that entire product line. Yes, got it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, clearly, there are a lot of people like your children enjoying these products. And the environmental group Break Free from Plastic reported that PepsiCo was the second biggest plastic polluter in the world. Despite its goal to have packaging be recyclable, compostable, and biodegradable or reusable by 2025. That's next year. Yeah, that's, yes, yes. Because you often see in this world, they're talking about 2030 now, they're talking about 2050, but eh, that 2025 is creeping up on you. Yeah, and we'll talk about that today, like the importance of companies having aspirational targets, but also when they're so far off them, what, what they lose in terms of legitimacy with consumers. And it's not just consumers and nonprofit groups that are looking at this, but recently local governments are looking into this more strongly. And so at the end of last year, November, 2023, the state of New York sued Pepsi, accusing the snack and soda giant of choking a river running through the city of Buffalo with Gatorade bottles, Cheeto bags, and other products. And since PepsiCo is based in Purchase, New York, This is definitely meant to be a clear message from the New York state for them to clean up their act and do so quick. Huh, because that's, uh, I've been to the PepsiCo campus in Purchase. It's beautiful. It is Mm -hmm. not next to a river choked in plastic debris. I'm here to report, but, (laughs) you know, you hear about, you know, I don't follow this issue as closely as I should, but there is great big group of plastic that's like floating around in the ocean, yes, which I'm, I'm betting every cruise ship is avoiding when they go. I, I mean, do they, they must track it with satellites or something. Yeah. Jen, did you know that there are 21,000 pieces of plastic in the ocean for each person on earth? Oh my God. No, no, I, yeah. I, I did not. <laughs> yeah. That's some scale, but not in the way we're excited about. Uh, no, no, it is not. We talk about scaling solutions here, but we're not trying to scale up the number of plastic. So yes, this is clearly a major issue. And it's really interesting, I think, to look at, you know, Pepsi is based in New York. The New York government is wanting to sue them. And I think as one of the largest providers of these snack products, it's pretty, pretty high profile. So let me me give you some more details about it. So this lawsuit (laughs) was given by the New York Times Attorney General, which I... For all fellow Billions fans out there, that one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what they did is they surveyed the waste at 13 different sites along the Buffalo River and its tributaries in 2022. They collected nearly 2,000 pieces of plastic with identifiable branding. And what they found was that Pepsi products just were the most abundant. They represented over 17% of that trash. So I think what's important to note here is that there is a lot of plastic clogging our riverways and Pepsi is not the only company, but clearly it is a high profile 
company that is really they're going after. And it's kind of putting the industry at large on notice. And it's literally a stream that we're talking about. The upstream, Mm -hmm. downstream impact, impacting it literal waterway. So yes, I'm sure there were great puns in the headlines when these (laughs) articles came out. So Definitely. Okay. So the lingo, you know, they're putting on, we're going to invest in sustainable packaging and, and that's important. I am a, Big proponent. I think technology is going to save the day in certain ways. Certain nature-based solutions, incredibly important too. It's not an either or, but there is lots of growth for the and. There's a lot of road to go on a lot of these tech-based solutions. So until it gets really going, how do you deal with that as a comms way about you know how you really are doing things with waste and with water and with packaging when the New York Attorney General is coming at you? Exactly. Yeah. No, I think it's an important question because it has to be a diversified approach. You have Mm -hmm. to be thinking about what are you doing upstream? How are you designing out waste? Are you like creating a circular economy within your product line? But then also, yeah, creating new bioplastics and the like. So I think this gets to an important point around telling your company's narrative arc towards progress. Mm -hmm. So I think there are some big bets on tech that are important for maybe five to 10 years out. But how will consumers be seeing a more sustainable package in the next year or two? You know, Jen, the next time you go to the store to get some hot Cheetos, like, (laughs) is it going to be a different bag? And how is that going to get communicated? I guarantee you most people who are purchasing Cheetos aren't like thinking like, hmm, I'm going to go home and read their CSR report. (laughs) Like, how are you reaching those consumers? And how can you also potentially partner with key consumer or environmental organizations to develop these solutions? Because as we know, that really helps add legitimacy to your messaging. Yeah, right. Because you you have that messaging and then you see 17% of all plastic in the Buffalo River is your bottling. And it, yeah. that's not a good look. Yeah. And I will say, you know, to Pepsi's credit, we've been really dogging them. We can okay. show both sides of this argument here. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. I'm just worried about my flaming hot Cheeto, you know, my I supplier, man. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. I mean, before this episode, I did not know you were such a big fan. And so I am not personally, I'd like to go on the record that the I've never had one. I've never had flaming <laughs> hot Cheetos, but I have two addicted children. So I'm okay. here for that. You're supporting their habit is what you're saying. I really am. I'm terrible. I'm a terrible parent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just getting back to the plastic goals here. So Pepsi, they released their first ESG report last year, their 2022 ESG report. And to their credit, they noted that they were slipping on their plastic goals. They said that their ESG report attributed increased use of virgin plastic from non-renewable sources in part due to quote, limited availability and high cost of recycled content. And then they also had some slippages in terms of their emissions data, and they cited greater than anticipated business growth in 2022 that affected virgin plastic reduction. So it feels a little bit like they're blaming, they're like, hey, we did really well this year, and therefore we couldn't reduce plastics. And supply chain issues are real. When the 2025 goal was set, they probably didn't have that. but I will recognize that not all companies kind of openly disclose challenges and there is some reputability there to being upfront about. I completely agree. I mean, and yeah, we 
dogging them because it's easy to dog because that's you can see the problem. It's right there. And you know, mm-hmm. you have a government entity coming at you. But the ability to to come forward and say, we acknowledge here we see the problem. We're saying the problem because if they never said anything at all, you know, they would, it'd be much slower on the uptake to try to make something happen. Right. You know, definitely. It, it's like, it doesn't happen unless you measure it, unless you go public. It's like, this is a silly comparison, but you know, they often say, if you are trying to lose weight or get healthy or what, it's like the best thing you do is go public with it. And then everybody's mm, like, accountability. Like, accountability. So uh, yeah, then yes, I think you're right that there is a positive here of letting themselves be accountable to their own goal. Definitely. And I think part of this too is bringing consumers, advocates, other folks into the process to understand yeah. potentially the complexity of these changes. And so with that, I'll switch gears a little bit to talk about Unilever, who is doing similar things, right? They're also a large CPG company. They've got Dove, Ben and Jerry's, Magnum, Axe brands under them. They're a major plastic contributor, but what they proactively have really been sharing is not just their goals, but also how they are trying to rethink plastic Mm, packaging. And as someone who, you know, I'm not a chemicals scientist, I'm not a materials engineer, not to fool you, Jen. I knew you were thinking. Why are we doing this podcast then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I hate to break it to you, but I am not those yet. Who knows? We could always have a PhD later in life. But, always. You know, it can be really helpful to bring people along on your journey and just disclose how you're trying to do better. And I'll just note that Unilever has this great blog post around rethinking plastic packaging. They also have goals, right, that they yep. want to reduce plastic in their supply chain, but their research has shown that without action, twice as much virgin plastic will be created and three times more plastic could flow into our oceans by 2040. And so their discussion about kind of plastics and how they're thinking about it was through a very catchy uh, framing, which we always love here in the comms world, less plastic, better plastic, no plastic. Hmm. Love that. Rolls off the Love tongue. The that could be that could be Love a jingle. <laughs> I just it's really easy to remember. And so what they talk about is, you know, we can't apply the same strategy for all parts of our supply chain, but for less sure. plastic, they're gonna be cutting down on how much plastic they use in the first place, better plastic, making sure the plastic they use is designed to be recycled and our products are using recycled plastic and then no plastic, really trying to push for more refill stations and formats to cut out new plastic completely and switching to alternative packaging materials. And so, yeah, just as another CPG example, I think that it's nice to understand where these companies are going, that it is not going to happen overnight, but having these kind of multifaceted approach and taking people with you on that journey of how you kind of have to transition your supply chains away from plastic is super impactful. Yeah. I love it. It's really, um, and it's humans, we need to organize our thoughts. And so to put Mm -hmm. it in buckets like this. Rule of threes. Yeah. This is why every example in a news story always has three. It's just, it's orderly. I like it. We love it. We love rule of threes. And just one last note that I'll say about Unilever as we keep kind of moving through different examples today 
is that we're recording this in winter 2024. Davos just happened. And I was really excited to see that Unilever CEO, Hein Schumacher, called for a UN treaty to end plastic pollution. So it's great to see the global scale and that this is really coming not only into the business world, but also policy world. Yeah. Well, you know, Davos is just like we had talked a lot in our earlier episodes this season about COP28, which is the big UN organized climate event. This is kind of the business organized uh, event. So the CEOs are all coming together and talking about what's important to them. And so to get these big names to come out and say something in the climate world on whatever part of it, it's very powerful. And we used to say the same thing a million years ago. You know, we were trying to get mostly female executives, but we would take men too to come out and say something about paid maternity leave or the like, because it's affinity bias. Executives listen to other executives. So to see totally the Unilever lead say this gets others to say, oh, maybe we should be looking at our policies too. So a uh, big thumbs up to Unilever for, again, being accountable, going public. So yeah, it's really important. And I think as we both know, like getting on the talking points for an executive is always a bit of a push and pull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to put it mildly. Like, yeah, well, yes, that's right. So and so yeah, having them talk about it is just shows real commitment from the company because I'm sure there's oh, a lot that Unilever did also were, talk about at Davos and a million things they could have covered. <laughs> but the people got together to make sure they could say that, you know, that yeah. that's awesome. So, okay, so we're doing a lot with CPG. Now, I was mentioning that a million years ago, another previous life, I have so many previous lives. I was a fashion business reporter. So I worked at Women's Wear Daily and Footwear News. I know you are, you're very impressed. Actually, a wonderful, wonderful magazine. And so my job, I covered the business. There was a time I was a Capitol Hill reporter covering like trade agreements and, and policies. And the like, but I really never, the environmental costs were never on my radar. And, but I always kind of bring that eye when I go into like, especially like flagship stores, because that's always an opportunity for a brand to kind of show themselves. And why I'm thinking about this is because over the holidays, I was shopping at Uniqlo with my son, because, you know, hipsters. And I'm wandering around trying to entertain myself because I, you know, this things were not for me. They were for (laughs) him. But, Way in the back, it, granted, it was in the back, a couple floors up. I come across this huge mural, and it's their sustainability story. And yeah. it was a comprehensive sustainability story. And they were talking a lot about it, there were lots of different aspects to it. One of the things I, that caught my eye was that they were talking about using technology, especially 3D cutting, to get the most out of anything they're cutting, which is a real waste in fashion is a real huge issue of of the materials. So, you know, it's both, it's, and as someone who covered it a million years ago, it was a cost issue as opposed to an environmental cost issue. But there's clearly some overlap. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, and, and again, because I, I just was not something I was thinking about in the late nineties and here we are. Yeah. No, it's super interesting because I think companies like Uniqlo are framed as fast fashion brands. Yeah. And that's an industry that is could be said to be one of the least sustainable because of the mm-hmm. quick turnaround of their supply chains. 
But I think because of a lot of the bad press that they've gotten, it does seem to be that some of these high profile brands, Uniqlo, H&M, Zara, you know, they're starting to really change their practices and also look at unique ways to support the transition to more sustainable supply chains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so on that note, actually, I was thinking about fashion as well and came across a pretty interesting article about H&M's green loan program that they've created to support the financing of supplier emission reductions. And so without getting too nerdy about scopes and climate accounting, I know all of you are dying to hear more (laughs) about that. But for H&M and a lot of other fashion companies, the carbon reduction pipeline is looked at scope one, scope two, and scope three. And so emissions that companies directly control are known as scope one. The electricity they buy to control those and you know operate those is scope two. And then scope three is the long tail of every company's oh, emissions so profile. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of the most challenging since it's indirect. And that's where a lot of these fashion companies, the brands and the factories that they work with fall into this challenging world of scope three. And so what was interesting about this green loan program is that basically what they're doing is they're giving access to H&M suppliers to financing money from DBS Mm -hmm. with highly favorable terms to suppliers who are specifically trying to use that money for greenhouse gas emission reduction activities. And alongside the money, the suppliers are also going to get technical support from a sustainability consultant to help them kind of embark on factory upgrades to decrease climate impact. And this looked really interesting to me and reminded me of what, you know, we worked on a bit at Meta, which was supplier engagement, because, you know, we set these large climate goals, H&M, right, has a net zero 2040 goal, 60% of their emissions are from scope three fashion suppliers. And so it's really a smart investment to support the decarbonization journey of your suppliers, because without that, like, you know, level up, they won't necessarily have the funding or the expertise to get there. And that was some of what our colleagues on the climate team at Meta were doing as well. And, you know, I think the other important thing to keep in mind around scope three and suppliers that makes me a bit hopeful about the dividends that this can pay is that it's also hopefully going to influence the broader industry of fashion suppliers. Right. We see we see this in tech and we also see this in fashion that there are factories and workshops in Asia that are utilized by multiple different US and yeah. European based brands. And so once one company starts supporting a factory's transition to better business practices, Ideally, this is both on the sustainability angle and more equitable labor practices, then it can start a really exciting flywheel effect, impacting Mm. the supply chains of multiple brands and often in the long run, making the factory more desirable in the long run because you have these other brands that are also going to be looking for more sustainable suppliers. And so they're going to be getting the benefits to their factory workers and to their product, but then also kind of be higher in demand because they're going to contribute to the climate goals of those brands. Because it's so true that, and I, you see it in a lot of uh, industries, Meta was one of them, where you're not the major, the only client of a factory. So it, a lot of these things have to, it's an enticement, like, and these, you know, favorable loan terms, you got to make it so their business 
benefits from it as well. Because if you're not like Walmart coming in and being the massive buyer of every piece of like leather for footwear in one particular region, theoretically, they can just tell you what to do because they're your biggest client by far. So these things where you're one client of a whole factory and then making change and then kind of infecting the rest. It's that's great. I and I love it. It's an important piece of the scope three puzzle, which can seem too complicated to put together sometimes. But yes. you know, just constant forward momentum. And I love it. Yeah, I think it it really highlights the power of partnership, the power of organizations across an industry working together. Yeah. I love it. Okay, Jen, we're on to the last company we're going to talk about today. And to do so, we're going to make it a little fun. We're going to play a game. Okay. All right. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. So the question for this game is, what company do you guess creates the most packaging waste in the world? And the hint is you probably saw them on your front doorstep this week. Amazon. 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 (laughs) Thank you so much for the buzzer. That was a very necessary part of this game and you got to gold star. Yeah. So I'm sure folks have been wondering, how can we talk about packaging without a quick nod to everyone's favorite packaging store, Amazon? And, you know, they have net zero 2040 goals, and that's really going to necessitate a robust packaging and plastics reduction policy to get there. 2040 is just around the corner. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, because Amazon's so interesting, other than it's humongous and it's ubiquitous, but it's also the packaging, it comes in all kinds of variations. Someone who gets, whose entire life is funded by Amazon. So- What's happening with all their packaging? Yeah, well, you know, when I think not everyone will think about plastic when they think about Amazon. Often yeah. people will think about cardboard. And it does seem like everyone's recycling bins are filled with cardboard. And I yes. I don't imagine that those are breaking down effectively no. in landfills. There's just no. too much. I appreciate New York City picks it up. It's separate you're separating that out of your trash with the cans. And the plastics, which I worry about where any of that plastic is actually going. But you feel kind of confident about it as you're putting it separate from your trash. And then you see the entire block, everybody's cardboard out. And you think, what's happening with all that? (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I think oftentimes when we open up these packages, they have plastic inside them, right? There's often like plastic sheathing and stuff. And so... I don't want to steal the thunder of our next episode, Jen, but I do feel like starting to talk a little bit about Amazon and thinking about packaging is really important. We have this quote here actually from the VP of Sustainability, Cara Hurst, who I've had the pleasure of meeting in the past that I think is really, really relevant for this conversation today, where she says, There can no longer be silos between industries when it comes to climate action. We all need to think long-term while acting with extreme urgency, and the conversation is already moving from simply talking about investments and potential they bring to deploying the available capital and making changes. So I think this is a really good quote for us to keep in mind as we think about both the types of solutioning, right? Whether we're yeah. thinking about reducing packaging or supporting these like high waste industries like fashion, how are we doing it early on in the waste stream? How are we doing it from design? How are we using materials more effectively? And then also in terms of end of life, 
and waste and making that more available for consumers and municipalities. And then being the comms person in the middle of it all, trying to like piece out stories that you can tell authentically that have impact. It can seem like there's too much in the maelstrom, even if it's a positive maelstrom. But my point would be that there's so many good stories to say. And there's also accountability to take, plenty for all of us. So, Yeah. And I think another important story to, to like note with is that you can tell stories with your packaging. I think some of the most interesting packaging, like I'm thinking of Oatly containers right now, right? Yeah. Like they have so much information crammed on there about their <laughs> sustainability story. And like often you're just like pour Oatly into your coffee or maybe your cereal and then you're just sitting there. You have time to take it in. Like there not only could be more done around packaging and reduction of plastics, but also telling that story on the packaging. I love it. It's like your old days reading like the Count Chocula's cereal box, (laughs) (laughs) which my mother never let me have. But yeah, I always always envied the kids who could have that stuff. But (laughs) well- Once again, we have charged into another sector and we have the receipts to prove it. (laughs) And the puns too. So next time we're going to be sailing into our next sector. But before then, I would love to hear what our listeners are thinking about in terms of like being in the maelstrom and juggling so many aspects of their own company's sustainability story. And not to mention your own retail adventures. Yes, do. Please shoot us a note. And a reminder that you can send us that note at engagingesg at gmail.com. And thanks for joining us. And as always, keep engaging. Thank you for joining us on Engaging ESG. Have a question for us to consider or a strategy you'd like us to cover? Email us today at engagingesg at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Engaging ESG today. It helps us grow, and even better, be sure to share the podcast with your favorite sustainability, diversity, or social impact colleague. And until next time, keep engaging.